This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Hi, wherever you are on the planet, I, I will tell you a little bit about myself, even if you didn't care, because you didn't wake up this morning saying, you know what, I really like that God Show, and I'd like to tune in to find out who Pat's guest is this week. I'd like to know a little bit more about Pat. You didn't say that, did you? But I'm going to tell you anyway, at least educationally. Uh, I may have mentioned in the past, for those of you who are really loyal listeners, that my parents were entertainers. They were in show business. They were in the equivalent of vaudeville and traveled constantly, con- traveled the country constantly, and I spent most of my youth in and out of the car which meant I was homeschooled. But then finally, when my parents thought it was a good idea that I got some kind of formal education, as an Irish Catholic family, they said, we're going to find a really good boys' Catholic school somewhere in the Middle West, so he'll be close to us wherever we wind up. And they went to Des Moines, Iowa, right in the middle of the country, and said, wait a minute. There's this really, really highly thought of boys' school called Des Moines Dowling, named after Bishop Dowling. And they sent me there, and I boarded on campus, one of about 14, 15, 16 boarders out of 1,000 students. And I loved my Catholic education so much that I then went to a Catholic college in another part of Iowa, I like the state, like the people, and went to what's called the Quad Cities, Davenport, Iowa, right on the Mississippi River, directly across from Illinois. Went to St. Ambrose College, now St. Ambrose University. That was an all-boys school, too. I don't know what the church was telling me, uh, but uh, it seems as if both institutions, shortly after I left, almost immediately became co-ed. Something about Trusting Pat. Now, if you're wondering why it is that I'm going into all of this personal detail, I'll tell you that that's my experience with Catholic education, high school and college, and I loved it. Son that went to Notre Dame, he loved it. And that's one of the reasons why the subject today is all about Catholic education, but it's also applicable to Hebrew school. And it's also applicable to Protestant schools. And it's applicable to private education in general. But there's something unique about Catholic schools. And you're going to find out exactly what the uniqueness is, where it comes from, and why it is that you might seriously consider that Catholic school down the block from you. Because Rob Curtis is here. He's the director of campus ministry for Benedictine University, what? No, no, not in Illinois, not in Kansas. This is the new one in Mesa, Arizona. Rob, we welcome you to the Star Worldwide Networks and the God Show. But my first question really has to be, why did it take a school that started one of the campuses in 1858 and another one in 1887, why did it take you so doggone long 
to get to the Southwest and Mesa, Arizona? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think it really just had to do with finances. It's really expensive to start a university, um, even a satellite campus. And uh, for a long time, I mean, Arizona has been pretty much a staple of, of public education and hasn't had a lot of private universities uh, to choose from. There wasn't any Catholic education no. available other than high schools Correct. and uh, elementary schools, but no higher education in the entire state. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, years ago, I mean, decades ago, we had a, a major seminary down in Tucson, uh, but that eventually closed down. But that wasn't a school for everybody. It's just, no, it was just that a- was for seminarians who would go on uh, to have their holy orders and become priests. Correct. Well, we were delighted in the Valley of the Sun where this program originates to welcome Benedictine. So do us the Reader's Digest condensation of the history of Benedictine University. I said it started a long time ago. That is correct. Uh, So Benedictine University um, is a separate institution than Benedictine College in Kansas. Uh, So Benedictine University uh, was started back in 1887 when uh, some Benedictine monks formed the Abbey of St. Procopius in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago. They were sent there to really uh, minister to the Slavic people of that area, and they started the college with four students. Uh, ben, eventually, they grew. The four who could spell Procopius. Exactly, exactly. Uh, they grew out of that uh, parish church and that abbey and ended up moving the abbey to Lyle, Illinois, which was the suburbs at the time, really just farmland. L I S L E. Correct, yeah. And they uh, built the, the university there. So for the, for the longest time, it was St. Procopius College. And uh, eventually, it became Illinois, Illinois Benedictine College and then eventually Benedictine University. Um, all at least inspired by St. Benedict. Correct. Yeah. Who was who? So St. Benedict of Nursia was, um, is considered the father of Western monasticism. He, it's actually quite interesting because you could kind of call him the patron saint of the gap year. Um, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of young people these days uh, choose to take a gap year from after they graduate high school before going to college. Yes. You could kind of say St. Benedict was that first first individual. He uh, was a Roman um, and grew up in nobility and was sent from his family's home to Rome to study uh, and was so turned off by the culture of the day that he ended up leaving. He just quit school and uh, went and decided to live in a cave for about three years uh, near Subiaco, uh, which was just outside of Rome. And while he was there, he was tended to by a monk from a local monastery named Romanus who gave him a rule to follow uh, so that he could grow spiritually and also would provide food for him. Uh, and, and really, Romanus didn't share uh, about Benedict with anybody, so he would end up having to take food out of his own um, uh, ration from the monastery to share with Benedict. But in three years, uh, Benedict grew in wisdom and emerged really as this uh, insightful spiritual uh, individual. And a lot of People around there understood that and, and kind of reached out to him for spiritual wisdom, and he was eventually asked to be the abbot of a local monastery, um, but he was so rigid uh, that they actually attempted to kill him. And he was saved by divine intervention from that uh, and left and eventually started his own monastery, which grew to 12 monasteries, the most well-known as Monte Cassino, uh, where he ended up uh, passing away uh, years later. But 
before he did, he wrote what is called the Rule of St. Benedict. And it's really just, as he called it, the little rule for beginners, for those that want to enter into the spiritual life. What do they need to know? Where do they need to start? And it governs the aspects of running a monastery well. What do we do to make sure a monastery uh, does what it needs to do? Um, it governs what a monk is supposed to do to be considered a good monk, and also what an abbot is and how he is a spiritual father to his other monks. Uh, from there, uh, monasticism grew. And in a lot of ways, monasticism can be credited with, uh, in a large part, saving Western civilization. Because as Rome fell and as the structures of society began to crumble, uh, the culture was contained within these monasteries where the arts, where music, where the study of the sciences, where literature were preserved. And when the Renaissance period came about a thousand years later, there was a rebirth from there, from the monasteries is where it started and then spread throughout Europe. But what is the inspiration that St. Benedict has uh, on schools like St. Benedict's in Atchison, Kansas, and Benedictine University in Illinois, and now Benedictine in Mesa? What do they stand for that is represented by St. Benedict? It's really that education of the whole life, that when you come to, to a Benedictine school, we really see it as um, entering into an, a new existence, as it were, where you're going to be learning and discovering not just your studies, um, but really who you are. One of We have 10 hallmarks uh, that we pull from the rule of St. Benedict that, that actually all, all Benedictine colleges and universities in the United States kind of came together and said, what, what do we want to define Benedictine education as? And that's what these 10 hallmarks are. And one of them is uh, the Latin word conversatio, which means the way of formation and transformation. It's this idea that as you come into a Benedictine college or a Benedictine university, we want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We don't want to be the same person that arrived as a, as a freshman with you know, not knowing anything about college. We don't just want a degree. We want to be someone who can really step into the world and know our place in it um, and know how we can affect change positively. Well, that is, is a little background about, and by the way, let us agree, the pronunciation, at least now, is Benedictine. For all of my years as a Catholic, any time that I ever talked about a Benedictine anything, it was that, Benedictine. And is it only recently that people have been saying Benedictine? I, I think so, yeah. It was a part, really, of, our, of the university's identity was to, to, to use the term Benedictine. Well, this, and this hour isn't really about Benedictine University. Uh, it's about Catholic education in general. But as it applies, of course, to your background, Rob Curtis is the director of campus ministry. Uh, take on the responsibility of knowing that you're talking about Loyola, you're talking about all, all of the Mary schools, and, of course, the giant of them all, Notre Dame. I can say that because I had a son there. <laughs> uh, Catholic education in America, why should anybody choose it? Well, you know, I, I, I was not able to be Catholic educated myself. I was a public school student. Um, and I, Where? Uh, I went, grew up here in Mesa. So I went to Keller Elementary and, and Dobson High School. But you came from a Catholic family. Came from a Catholic family, yeah. Why did you choose non-Catholic academics? Uh, well, really because my mother worked in public education. She was 39 years in Mesa Public Schools. Oh, so, sure. Uh, it was more easier to go with mom to school. 
And then when it came time to go to high school, we looked at Seton, uh, but it was just a little pricey for my family. So Seton, relatively small high school in the East Valley. Yes. Uh, of uh, what is metropolitan Phoenix. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I went, ended up at Dobson High School. Um, and, and honestly, it was Catholic education was not something, my, my home parish did not have an, an elementary school attached to it, so it wasn't something even that I was really aware of um, until I got older. Uh, but it is Why? Why? Why did something happen to you as you got older after all of those years of exclusively public, non-Catholic, non-religious education? Uh, it started when I went off to college. So I actually went to, um, my freshman year I spent in Utah, um, I figured any good place for a Catholic to go was probably Utah. Um, well, since you grew up in Mesa, there was probably some influence. A little bit, yeah. Um, but I, I think I more so wanted to just get away. And I didn't want to go to NAU. Um, I wanted to go somewhere cold uh, and somewhere small. And, and so I wound up at Southern Utah University. Um, I would have stayed, but snow scared me. It was a... Uh, and and uh, so you were there yeah. for a short period of time. But while I was there, I began discerning priesthood to see if I was going if I was called to be a priest, um, and and spent a lot of time at the parish church there, and spent a lot of time with the pastor there, just getting to know him. And you considered a life then as a member of the religious. I did, yeah. And he was actually a former vocations director for the diocese of Salt Lake, so he really helped me discern what was it that God was calling me to be, who was God calling me to be. And after um, a year there and, and a year at ASU, just kind of discerning if this was was a calling, I realized um, that lay ministry was something that I could actually serve in. And so I ended up um, pursuing a vocation in lay ministry um, and worked for parishes, uh, worked as a youth minister, worked as um, in adult formation and liturgy, but found myself working at parishes that had schools. And so that was really my first introduction to Catholic education was working alongside principals and teachers um, that were building up the mission of the church, uh, both from a parish side and from a, an elementary school side. But what side. is it about their work and Catholic education institutionally, academically, um, spiritually? What is it about that that you learned that late in your spiritual development that attracted you enough that you eventually wound up becoming the director of campus ministry at a Catholic university. I think it had a lot to do with the mission of the school. That, you know, growing up in a public school, the mission of our school was to educate the students. And that was all well and good. Um, but the mission of a Catholic school was really to not just educate the students in, in academics, but in virtue. And to help them to be good contributing citizens to the world at large. To carry their faith with them wherever they go into whatever they end up doing. Um, you know, they can be good doctors, doctors that are faithful and that are, that are holy but, but can continue to serve in this world, or teachers, or businessmen and women. Um, and so the schools, you know, their mission was connected to that of the church, to really uh, proclaim the good news, that the good news that we have been liberated from sin by Christ, that we are here to build up a just and equitable society in this world, to do what is right, to bring about not just uh, the fulfillment of God's plan, but to bring about the betterment of humanity. And also, as a result of your professional development and your communication with God, uh, offering you step-by-step -step opportunities 
to find a direction and a path. When you had that conversation that day with God, and it had to do with what do you want me to do if not be a priest? And he said to you clearly, I want you to be a husband and the father of three children. Look at what happened. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Boy, you follow rules really well. I try. Rob. I try. <laughs> Ask my wife. She, she'll say the same, hopefully. <laughs> so obviously the transition for those people who are listening right now, thinking that somehow that all people in Catholic clergy uh, decided somewhere around four or five years old that that's what they wanted to be and they never changed their mind. It isn't exactly that way. Oh, not at all. No, some decide even later in life. Um, some go through college and uh, discern at a different point in their life. So, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's really, um, and that's one of the great things about Catholic education is we really impress upon a student to be open to what God's plan is for you. There's a, an old saying, a little joke that says, if you ever want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Um, so we really try to impress upon our students to, to be open to, you know, yes, what do they want to do? Um, but really what is, what is God calling you to do? And in that you find that peace and that joy that can be fulfilling for life. Because I think there, there's a lot of, of stress in this world today. A lot of, um, just disenchantment with our work lives, um, and, and a disconnectedness between the work that we do and the, the lives that we live outside of that. And it is actually a Benedictine, um, the Benedictine motto uh, of the whole order, not just our university, is ora et labora, um, prayer and work, to see a harmony in life between the life that God is calling us to and the work that we do day in and day out. So the, the disconnectedness that we see in this world between people's work lives and home lives and social lives and all that, as a, as a Catholic university, we say, no, this needs to be brought into harmony with one another so that you can truly find that fulfillment and what you're bringing home from work and what your work is staying there and you're coming home to your families and, or, or whatever your state in life is and finding that joy and fulfillment. And Let's all clarify that. something that may also be a misunderstanding still, even after all of these decades and decades and decades of the existence of Catholic education in America. Catholic education, elementary school, high school, we're really concentrating on higher education on this program. Not just for Catholics. Correct. Clarify that for everybody right yeah. now who just fell out of their seats because they thought all this time that that was not even to be included in their choices for their kids. Yeah. Um, it's actually something that when we have recruiting visits on campus, I always have to remind parents and future students, uh, you do not have to be Catholic to come here. And we're not going to necessarily, you know, baptize you or force you to be Catholic on your way out the door. Um, you know, you are here to become the best you that you can be, however it is um, that you come. So no, Catholic education is for everyone. Um, it's uh, essentially an education that's rooted in the mission of the church. But just as the church is uh, open to the world, um, so is Catholic education. And we feel it's important to create institutions where anyone can come in co into contact with um, with God and his and to help him find their place in this world. No brainwashing? No brainwashing. Uh, do faculty members get any kind of lecture from the administration when you're new to the school 
about no brainwashing because it would be easy to fall into that trap. You know, it's a, it's a great point that you um, bring up. Like, you know, um, would faculty just kind of tendence, have a tendency to go to that? We actually have a lot of non-Catholic faculty. Um, so you do not have to be Catholic to teach at a Catholic university. When you say we, you're also talking about the majority of, of The majority Catholic of Catholic schools. schools, you're right. Um, so to be a theology faculty, it makes sense to be to be sure. Catholic. And at Benedict and Mesa, um, that is certainly the case there. But we have a lot of non-Catholic faculty. The idea is um, we want them to be able to teach in harmony with the Catholic faith, to not necessarily oppose it, um, but to... Uh, and with a lot of our degree programs and a lot of our courses, it does work in harmony. But we still very much respect academic freedom because we see that the pursuit of, a, of, of Catholic education, the pursuit of education as a whole, is truth. Um, we, as, as, as a faith, define truth uh, as a person and that we recognize there is an objective truth. But nonetheless, any academic pursuit is a pursuit of truth. Whether, in fact, it's a generality uh, that is rooted in truth, or it's just our perception of the emphasis on education in Jewish families, not to the exclusion of other religions, but just Jewish families <laughs> that many of us know. I think probably most of us can agree there's a great emphasis in so many of those families in education uh, and um, the, the extent that that can go would certainly include higher education on a university level. But I will tell you now that of the Jewish families that I know, here in the Valley of the Sun, a disproportionate number of them send their kids to Catholic school. Mm -hmm. Has nothing to do with Catholicism. They don't lack faith in Judaism, but they seem to have faith in the Catholic education system. Have you noticed? Yes, I have. Um, and actually, Benedict and our Lyle campus is known um, for being very open to Muslim students. About 25% of our student population in Lyle is... 25%? 25%. Why? Because of that pursuit of truth, that um, understanding that they will be accepted for who they are on the campus and uh, that we won't push them in any one way or another to not... Or, they can be who they are and pursue their academic interest as they need to. But non-Muslims, at least in much of the world, are not thought of as the equal of Muslims. Yet in Catholic schools, and I believe that this is true without exception, if you go to a Catholic grade school, high school, or college, you at some time have a religion course. Yes, well, the religion is not probably going to be Islam right. at Lyle. Right. And so how do you handle that? Well, I mean, I, I teach in the theology faculty at, at Benedict and Mesa as well. And really? We have a lot of, um, we're actually only about 36% Catholic of our student population. Okay, hold it just a second. I want to give time to that family in Detroit right now who are getting people in from the other part of the house to hear this. Okay. Because you just said the main campus, right, in Lyle, Illinois, uh -huh. outside of Chicago, has how many students? I think it's about 3,000. Okay, pretty good-sized school. Yeah. And you said the percentage of Catholic students is what? Oh, no, our campus is 36%. Oh, in Mesa? In Mesa, yeah. Okay, but still. It's a... But still, even for a new university, 
it's still a Catholic university, and only 36% of the student body are Catholic? Yes. Why? Um, I think largely because we built our enrollment through athletics. So we, we built it by offering scholarships to students to come and play baseball or good play PR, basketball. Good PR, though. It, it works well. Good marketing. Um, so a lot of students come for that sport. Um, but also, it, I think a lot of our Catholic school, high school graduates are looking for um, the next level of academic pursuit. A lot of our Catholic high schools are college prep schools. Um, and so being a new campus, there was kind of that concern of, how long is Benedictine going to be here? I mean, there were other Catholic colleges that tried to open up in Phoenix and didn't make it very long. Um, and so there was certainly that concern. But I think now that we've been here seven years um, and that we're showing growth and we're stabilizing, I think there's really a chance that, that we'll attract more Catholic students to it. But either way, we're, we're here for whoever, and that's the beauty of Catholic education. There's a generality about Catholic education, I think, in this country, and that is that you're not going to get second-class academics if you go. I, I never hear a criticism of a Catholic school academically. I hear facilities mm -hmm. are not always uh, up to par with some of the rest of, particularly the, uh, the better neighborhood public schools, mm -hmm. with pools and, and uh, some, some extra goodies that are attractive. But I never hear criticism academically. Uh, but I do hear the Catholic education is in trouble in the United States. And if I've heard that, and if I've read that, I'm sure you have. Certainly. Why? Well, cost is a big thing. Fifty years ago, it was nuns and priests that taught in the Catholic schools. And so their salaries were a lot less because usually they were cared for by the convent or by the diocese or, or the religious order that was running the school. And salaries in, in those categories of profession, uh, that's not the reason you become a priest or a nun. No, no. Because you can invest wisely. Right. So, um, so as, the, as we've had a declining number of religious and of priests over the last uh, five decades or so in the church's history, uh, the schools have had to rely on lay teachers. And lay teachers don't just require a, a decent salary. They require benefits. Um, they have families to care for. They have um, responsibilities on their time that come outside of the schools. And so those costs have um, caused Catholic education costs to rise dramatically. I also think the um, church has been hurt in no small way by the sexual abuse scandal. Absolutely. And how, and how it has rocked um, our schools and our parishes. And so there's a hesitation to entrust children to Catholic education as much because we don't understand what might be happening um, from, a, from a perspective of, of somebody looking into Catholic education. And so I think those things have really, and then also the, the rise of secularism amongst our culture, that we'd rather promote good public education and send our students there and aren't too keen on religious education as much anymore. Yet in the face of all this, the Catholic schools have continued to produce um, high-quality graduates, a great education. Um, so even with the change in the faculty, you're saying that the academic standards have still remained high? We still remain, yes. The problems that you were just talking about, I don't know how you can overcome, you can't overcome the scandal. True. Until scandalous behavior stops. Mm -hmm. And then for about a century... Uh, people will still remember. Right. 
Uh, but when it comes to economics, how do you handle something like that? Because it's true that the, the uh, evolution of the clergy has really fallen by the wayside, and uh, it's very, very difficult for even churches without schools to remain productive for their communities mm-hmm. because there aren't any priests to take care of them. Convents are closing because people are not going uh, into the uh, into the convent. What do you do about it? I think that's the question the church is wrestling with right now. Um, just recently, the Amazon Synod was held, and this made all the news and all that because there was a, a, a question as the bishops and the faithful of the Amazon region um, in Brazil and in, in South America were coming together to say, how can we respond um, to the need for priests and the need for— They're having the same problem. All across the world we're seeing that problem. Um, the Amazon region was just kind of the first to really bring it up at, a Vatican, at, the, at the level of the whole church when they had their synod. And one of the answers they said that they that they thought might work was married priesthood, um, and so they they actually suggested to uh, Pope Francis um, one of the recommendations out of the synod was to ordain permanent deacons um, to the priesthood. So married men who had served as deacons and had served um, well the church uh, that they would um, that they could be ordained priests. Explain well, explain to our audience that really spreads across the broadest possible cross-section of humanity. Explain the diaconate. So um, the diaconate is actually uh, comes out of the Acts of the Apostles, which is one of the books of the New Testament um, that kind of tells the story of the early church just after the ascension of Jesus, and, um, and so the church of Paul and Peter and the early apostles. The deacons were seen as um, men of good character that were chosen from um, among the community at large to be at service to the community. And so over the next 2,000 years, as the church developed, um, we kind of uh, played with what is that idea of the diaconate. Um, Diaconate was always a step toward the ordination of priesthood, so you were ordained a deacon before you were ordained a priest. Hmm. But the Second Vatican Council brought back, um, excuse me, the Second Vatican Council brought back the permanent diaconate, which is to say that married men could be ordained to the permanent level of the diaconate, where they are there to serve the priest at Mass, um, to serve the parish in, in a variety of capacities, um, but will not be ordained a priest. And that's one of the reasons why it is that a while back I was somewhat shocked to find that my assistant Little League baseball coach was distributing community, a, a communion, that it, and I, I had not seen up to that time anyone but the priest actually holding the host <laughs> and and making that available to the congregation. And, and, and I'm looking over at who was assisting the priest, and it was Al. <laughs> I, I wasn't used to Al being on the, or any Al being on the altar. That was the temporary diaconate, right? Uh, no, that would be the, the permanent. Oh, really? If, if Al was, unless Al was moving along to become a priest, um, that would be the permanent. No, diaconate. no, Al just was happy being an assistant baseball coach. Yeah. What do you do about the scandal? I guess if I had the right answer, you could elect me Pope. I don't know. <laughs> um, so kind of going back to the thought. on uh, What do you say to the students at yeah. Benedict? Let me put it that way. What do you, as the director of campus ministry, say to your students 
uh, in Mesa, Arizona, at Benedictine University, a new place downtown, uh, and and a new school in the world of Catholic education. What do you say to them when they come perhaps to you to say, listen, Rob, my family is really disturbed about the latest headline. Mm -hmm. I I share with them that I am too, that that the church, uh, that that members of the church have sinned, and they sin either through the abuse itself or through the cover-up, and that that has hurt us because any sin like that wounds the community at large, not just the individuals, and that the only way that we can move forward is to remember who we are, that we are a people of God, that we are rooted in the person of Jesus Christ who came to liberate us from our sin, to show us a new path, and that we need to do better. And I think the church has taken has taken strides to make that better, to provide safe environments, and we need to continue to do that. We need to continue to be vigilant. Uh, we need to continue to work to become holy in our lives um, and to help others in theirs. Well said. And we've talked about the problems that exist, not just in the Catholic Church, uh, but in various elements of society mm-hmm. everywhere. Let's talk about the fact that there are families right now so who knows? Maybe southern France. Uh, maybe, God help us, southern New Jersey. Uh, maybe, maybe Utah, where you went uh, looking for an education. And, and everybody's already sold. These families are sold on the quality of Catholic education. They've done a lot of research, and they really know that's where they want their kids to go. Help them pick out a school. Well, you have to find a school. Now I'm talking about a university now or a college. Yeah. You have to find a school where you feel at home at. Um, You know, going away to college is a big deal. I I left. I I moved uh, north to to Cedar City. I didn't know a single soul in the town. Um, And And there uh, were only 14. Yeah, something like that. It's a a small town. Yeah, I think there was about 13,000 when I moved up there. And coming from Phoenix, it was a, a cultural shock. Um, I still remember that my first mass that I attended at the local parish, there was like three people in the church when I walked in. So I realized I wasn't in Mesa anymore. Um, but, uh, I think it's important that when you're selecting a college that you really find, um, that place that speaks to you, you got to find a place that you're going to feel at home at, that you're going to feel that you have a connection to the resources that are going to help you, uh, to be successful as a student and that you're comfortable, uh, connecting with that. Um, then you want to look for the programming. You know, what, does it have the academic program that I want to have? The reason I, I put the other stuff first is that too often students say, I'm going to be a doctor, so I'm going to get my degree in pre-med and everything else, you know, be damned. And th- the reality is so many students change their minds when they get to college. They realize, you know what, I didn't realize I needed trigonometry to be a doctor. Uh, this isn't going to work. I'm going to go look at criminal justice. Y- yes, excuse me. Pardon me. If, if I could jump in just simply... As a dad, let me jump in because, boy, you really hit a familiar note on my xylophone <clears throat> because, and get this for a combination, two USC's and a Notre Dame. So family dinners at our house, when everybody got together for a holiday, it was always very interesting with that kind of competition. However, academically, both schools really good. 
my son that went to Notre Dame had the qualifications academically to be admitted. And I don't know how many people apply, but I know that it's a small percentage that get in. Mm -hmm. He changed his major seven times. While he was at Notre Dame, and they don't encourage it, changed his major seven times, went in biochemistry, and then it was music. And then it was, I mean, a real broad variety of things. Wound up as an aerospace computer engineer, so he doesn't write home for money. But, but you've got to get used to that as a parent, that no matter what interest your child has, going to that school, it, it's liable to and probably will change. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's one of the hardest things we see, especially with parents of students who are first generation in college, um, that they don't quite know how to have those conversations with their parents because their parents are expecting uh, this is the way it's going to be. I actually um, had a student that I met who wanted to change from pre-med to speech pathology. And when she went home to tell her, her parents this is what she wanted to do, the response was, you're going to let everybody down in this entire community. Everybody's oh. expecting you to be a doctor. Oh. And uh, The pressure. Oh, <laughs> It's a lot. So it's, it's important for parents to realize that's going to happen, and that's okay, because your, your student is... You know, I like to tell, I, I tell this to our freshmen when they arrive on campus for orientation. Say, you're a baby adult. You have to learn how to be an adult. You have to grow. This is not something that you've turned 18 and magically flipped a switch and everything makes sense in you're your life. You're a baby adult. I love that. It's, it, it's a new world. And the process of college is to discover who you are and who you're going to be. And, yeah, you might change your major a couple times, but if you can graduate knowing, you know, I, I've, I've fulfilled who you know, I, I needed to come and be here and, and who I needed to find, then you've done your job. Okay, and not everybody should go to Notre Dame. It's, it's, it is one of those schools that is magic. It uh, is, yeah. But so is Loyola. Uh, so is Gonzaga. How do you pick out one of those schools? Because they are all dramatically different under the umbrella of Catholicism. And, and to that extent, so are the little ones that nobody's heard of. Um, I just had the, sum, the pleasure this summer of visiting Mount Marty College in Yankton, South Dakota. No, wait a minute. I just found out where Yankton was. Yeah. What is the name of the school? Mount Marty College. It's another Benedictine school, um, and it's, it's right there on the, the banks of the Missouri River. And they've got a great president there, and uh, they're doing some amazing things. They only have about 700 students on campus. But it's a place where your student is going to go and find a, 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 great, a great life there. A, great a terrible January. Probably. Yeah. But a great life on campus <laughs> yeah. in Yankton, South Dakota. All right, but where, where do I find these? Do I just go online and look for Catholic education across the United States? You, that would take you a lot. There's uh, you know, over 230 Catholic colleges and universities across the country. Um, I would start with what region of the country do you want to live in? Um, you know, do you want to go to a, a, one of those first-class academic institutions, the Notre Dames, the Loyolas, the Gonzagas? Um, Boston College, I mean, those kind of the Jesuit schools as they were. Um, or do you want, you know, to be more on a liberal arts college? And that's where um, you're going to find schools like Benedictine, um, Mount Marty, uh, St. John's University in Minnesota. Give um, me a couple more. That's, that's interesting. These are names that aren't on the sports pages. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a lot of a lot of those smaller Catholic liberal arts colleges around the country. Um, Franciscan University in Steubenville is uh, one of the more well known on the uh, kind of the more conservative Catholic trend. Um, but you also have schools like um, St. Martin's University in, in Washington, St. Anselm University in New Hampshire. Saint okay, An- but 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 let's let's also. I'm really trying to give to the audience wherever they are uh, a, a stimulus to look around at the broad range of choices. And you've mentioned three or four names that I, I thought I knew about Catholic education, and they were brand new to me. Uh, when you're talking about categories um, in Chicago, just down the street from Lyle, Benedict, St. Benedict University, uh, no, Benedictine University right. uh, in Lyle, Illinois, uh, you've got DePaul, mm-hmm. uh, really well-known, mostly because of basketball, but it's a great academic institution. So, uh, so when you're looking, you suggest to start out geographically? Yeah, see what kind of region of the country you want to live in. Also see, um, you know, as you start looking into those regions, then what's the religious community that runs that? Because each one is going to have a different take on how they approach education. Pursue that. Franciscan schools are going to be different from Jesuit schools. They're going to be different from Benedictine schools. Um, and so really kind of knowing what kind of education those those religious orders are committed to. Some of them are run by just small groups of religious sisters. I think of Marian University in Fond du Lac that's run by the Sisters of St. Agnes. Um, I got the pleasure of getting to work with them early in my uh, ministerial career um, and found out they had a college and uh, back there, and that's the only university they run, but it's shaped by their um, values and their, their hallmarks of a religious community. And are they really good at something? I mean, are they known... I'm talking various, about Zane, not necessarily that school. Yeah, various schools smallest. are known by um, what what they're good at. So, for the example of Marion, it's a good nursing college because the sisters of Saint Agnes spend a lot of um, a lot of their nurse uh, sisters have become nurses and all that. That's what I want to know. Yeah, um, Jesuit schools. Yes. You yeah you mentioned them kind of as uh, one of the kinds of schools that you go to if you're really serious about studying. Yes. Is that true? Oh, yeah. The the Jesuit schools are very good at academics and across the board, um, some of the top-notch Catholic schools. Like what? Um, Like which schools or which? Well, I mean, can you think of a couple of Jesuit schools just offhand? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, Santa Clara, um, Loyola Marymount, Gonzaga, uh, Loyola New Orleans, um, Loyola Chicago, uh, Georgetown. Tougher Boston. to get in? Certainly tougher to get in, um, and, uh, but they're great places for um, grad school and, and, and the academic pursuits and all that. But they still seem, I'm thinking of Gonzaga, not a big school by any means. No, I mean, most of those are going to be around 10,000 students, undergrads or less. Spent quite a bit of time, spent quite a bit of time this year, this basketball season, number one in the nation. Yes. As far as the polls yeah. are concerned. And everybody knows about Gonzaga the last few years as an incredible basketball power. What does that do for a Benedictine, particularly Benedictine in Mesa? You said that initially a lot of people found out about you because of sports. Yes. Um, if you if, clarify what you're asking again, I'm just. Well, well, all right. How important is the inner 
uh, the non-scholastic activity program, like interscholastic sports, you're Division Three. We're NAIA. Okay. Yeah. Mostly, almost exclusively small schools. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's an important part of our campus life. I mean, as we uh, understand, we're, we're helping to shape the whole person. So not just their academic, not just their spiritual, but also their physical side as well. And so our sports teams really bring our campus together. They help build a sense of community, um, not just for our athletes, but for our non-athletes as well. Uh, something to have a little bit of pride in, just like a high school does, to be able to share um, in the glory and, and in the sorrows that come with it. Um, but our university has done pretty well on our campus uh, with our athletic programs just being... How many sports do you have, you know? We have 13. Wow. Yeah. And we last Thir- year... 13 interscholastic, intercollegiate sports. You're playing other schools yes. in 13 different sports. Yeah. That's amazing. And last year we actually won the NAIA National Championship in men's volleyball. So we've been pretty successful as well. And that gets people's attention. It does, yeah. And even if it's about volleyball initially... <laughs> And somebody says, you know, I don't play volleyball, but boy, they sure were exciting to watch. They would actually take a look at your campus? They have, yeah. I, I, they come in and, and realize that part of it is with a satellite campus is you kind of think you show up to class and that's it. When they see that we have athletics, when they see that we have student life, clubs, those kind of things, they realize, you know, this is maybe small, but it's a place where it, it's got everything I need uh, to be a student. Talk about Benedictine University, just simply as a local representative of Catholic education in the world. But we're really talking about the total package. Uh, Benedictine University here is right in the middle of downtown Mesa, which is a very, very large suburb of metropolitan Phoenix. And the metropolitan Phoenix area is very large with something like four and a half million people. Uh, all I can tell you is, is that when I hear people making a decision about going to a Catholic school or not, one of the first things that a student often says is, I don't want to go to school with all girls <laughs> or all boys. How does a parent answer that? Well, uh, most Catholic colleges are co-ed now. Uh, so. Much to my chagrin. <laughs> so I think, you know, there are a few that still are. Um, and... And I think it, it, there are students that need that kind of development to be amongst uh, their own gender. Is um, it advantageous? I mean, my experience has always been at co-educational institutions, and I, I think that there really is a great development that can happen. You can learn how to respect the other, and, um, and I see the need for that. But I, I could understand the need for, for single-sex universities. Yeah, this is a non-commercial program. So we don't stop mm-hmm. for a commercial break. No automobile ads or anything <laughs> like that. But we're going to make an exception. You get a chance to do a commercial specifically for Benedictine University in Mesa right now when you answer this question. How much does it cost? <laughs> don't be turned off by the cost. Private education is expensive, but uh, our annual tuition is 22300 a year but most of our students receive about 50% uh, scholarship aid from the institution itself, not counting stuff on top of it. So, for example, uh, let's say a student graduates from a Catholic high school, they're going to receive a $5,000 scholarship. And if they have a 3.5 GPA cumulative or higher, they're going to get $8,000 thrown on top of that. 
So right there, their tuition just went down by $13,000. Um, and that's just institutional aid. That's not counting grants and other things and outside scholarships. So even though um, that price tag sounds a little expensive, uh, we're actually pretty reasonable to uh, local institutions such as ASU and GCU. Yeah, but nobody gets whiplash over twenty plus thousand dollars anymore, considering what schools, and I'm not even talking Ivy League schools, uh, when major institutions with a huge reputation academically, when you're talking about thirty five and forty and fifty thousand dollars. True. A year, yeah. Uh, it, how is it that anybody can possibly afford any of those schools? Because there's a real question during this political year. As as to whether anybody can really afford at least the retail price of going to college, I think that's a fair question to ask um, because you know students are, especially this generation of students, are very hesitant to take loans out. Um, they're hesitant to limit their ability to it, their future ability to do what they want to do because of um, debt. And so, how do we respond to that effectively? I mean, we try to make our institution affordable. We've frozen tuition for the last couple of years mm-hmm. so that students uh, can continue to come. And we also appeal to first-generation students um, and, and also to DACA students to give them that opportunity on campus that they don't necessarily get uh, at larger institutions here in Arizona. Um, we want them to feel at home. We're a small enough school that every student that comes through that door is going to know. We're, we're going to know who they are. We're going to know about them. And we're going to be able to care for them if they start sliding academically. We're going to be right there to help pick them up and, and get them back on track. We want to see our students succeed, and we want them to graduate, um, but we also want them to know that they're loved. That's an interesting approach to education. <laughs> I don't think I've heard anybody on the faculty or in the administration of a, of a university or a college that I've talked to on this program. I can't remember one that said, we want them to know they're loved. They often say we want them to know they're going to be successful. We want them to know we'll help them academically when they need help. But we want them to know that they're loved. You know, if you use the definition of love that it wills the good of the other, then as an institution, I mean, that's really what we want for our students. We don't want them to just be successful. We want them to to be good, to receive all the all the blessings in life that they can have coming to them. And uh, we do that through helping our students to know that they're loved, to know that they're cared for. Um, For parents that bring their students from out of state and drop them off, to know that we're going to take care of them and make sure they feel as much at home as they do back home. And that's really the goal of a Benedictine education, um, which is rooted in that monastic life, uh, but also a Catholic education. Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois, something like 25, 30 miles outside of the loop. I think so, yeah. Okay. Started in 1887. You've been around for an hour and a half. Uh, that is the Mesa School. <laughs> uh, more literally, seven years. But in seven years, you've had a graduating class, though. We've had a few, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about a couple of the kids who have graduated who have benefited professionally from having gone to a new school, Benedictine of Mesa, Arizona. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, as, a, as an institution, we've been able to form some partnerships with uh, uh, local businesses like uh, Edward Jones um, that have gotten internships for our students that have turned into full-time work. Um, but uh, we've also been able to supply students uh, to the diocese to, to help um, 
work and ministry and other things like that. So we, we have one student uh, that was actually a part of our first graduating class, um, and he's now the parish manager at a local parish. Uh, and so he actually got his degree in management and organizational behavior, not theology. But that doesn't and, sound like I'm going to be able to buy a Mercedes. No, probably I, not. I, I want to find out, though, how I can tell uh, my kids in years to come. I went to Benedictine University in Mesa, Arizona. They were only six, seven years old. And I came out of there with such an education that I was able to move up in my field and look where we live now, look at the lives that we have, comfortable lives, because of the success that I attained because of my education. Well, what is that field going to be in? Um, I, I think our, our business field is one of the bigger ones that we're seeing a lot of graduates from, but also our criminal justice programs. Oh. These, are, these are students that really are graduating not with necessarily the um, the, the outlook of how much money am I going to make, but really how can I be of best service to the world? And so I think that's part of the, the comfort these students have is that I can live a comfortable life, get a, a, a decent job with a decent salary that I can build a life, but I'm doing something that's impactful, that's meaningful, that I, when I come home to my kids at night, I'm going to be able to, to know that I've done a, day's, a good, just day's work and I can build my family around that. And I think that's more of the benefit um, that a Catholic education, if you want to make a lot of money, there's a lot of schools you can go to. Um, but if you want to be something really uh, special in this world, then a Catholic education is a great place to turn. What if the answer to my question, how can I make the biggest personal impact on the world, and the voice I hear is, play your flute beautifully. Do you have arts programs there? We have a fine arts program, mainly studio arts. So, um, what does that mean? Painting. Oh, uh, oh those fine arts. Yeah. Uh huh. And what about theater? What about music? Do you have a band? Um, we don't have a drama program yet or, or a music program yet. Uh, but as we grow, hopefully that's something we can add. We also have um, programs in psychology and sociology, political science, theology, of course, um, uh, Spanish, um, health sciences, those, and those kind of programs. What does that student, though, who's on the volleyball team that was number one, when, when the NAIA? Last year. Okay, last year's the most yeah. recent number one championship college in volleyball in the NAIA is Benedictine of Mesa. How did they do it without a pep band? Our men's volleyball team's got a lot of characters. <laughs> Character or characters? Yes. <laughs> is it fun to go to Benedictine? It is. I enjoy being there every day with the students. I don't. I don't care whether you have fun. I'm talking. No, <laughs> no I, they is really, it fun to go to college at Benedictine, an urban school? Yeah. No, I, I think it is. It's downtown Mesa is our campus, um, so we uh, are involved. Our students are out there eating at the local businesses. They're hanging out on the different um, fun nights that Mesa has downtown. Ethnic our, diversity. Yes, very much so. Like what? Uh, we're very heavily Hispanic, um, but we have a lot of African-American students as well um, and pull from 23 different states across the United States. I've already told you I'm a big Notre Dame fan, right? Yes. And that's probably not a big surprise to anybody when you've even started out as a Catholic. You don't even have to have kids Absolutely. to be a Notre Dame fan. But if I was to be a Benedictine fan, I'd have to know how to get in touch with you. Yes. How? So you can go to our website, www.ben.edu slash Mesa, 
So that'll B-E-N take B-E-N dot E-D-U slash Mesa. Okay. That'll take you to the Mesa campus. And you can also call our main line, 602-888-5500. See, everybody right now is scurrying around looking for a pencil. I hope so. The most important <laughs> thing is, listen, hey, the kids don't have a choice yet. They haven't made a choice about a school. Well, don't all of a sudden kick that Catholic education under the rug because no matter what religion you are, including non-religious people, it's a great great opportunity listen your kid may wind up doing a talk show like the god show nice to have you